Uh, my name is Jordan, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really grateful to be with you guys today as we are kicking off our series on Genesis. For the next number of months, we're going to be looking at this first book of the Bible and taking two different approaches to it. The first part is something called anatomy, and anatomy is the study or structure, the study of the structure or internal workings of something. In anatomy, you take things apart to understand how they work. I remember when I was in eighth grade uh, in biology class, I'll never forget the smell of formaldehyde as a teacher rolled out the frogs for us to dissect. And they passed out goggles and scalpels to eighth graders. Why they thought that was a good idea, I have no idea. And uh, we took apart a frog. Now, anyone who's gone to medical school, you've done far more than that. But in anatomy, what you do is you take things apart to get a better understanding of how they work. There's a scripture in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul talks about not being ignorant of how the enemy works. And what we're hoping to do is to take some topics and to dissect them. Things like deception, envy, compromise. Each week, for the first number of weeks, we're going to be taking these things apart and taking a good hard look um, at, at each one of them, hoping to get a better understanding of how these things work, and more importantly, how these things might be impacting your life. And today we're talking about deception, which is the one that nobody thinks is impacting your life. It starts off in Genesis 3, and we're going to take this apart like I did that frog in eighth grade. Um, Genesis 3, in the, in the third chapter, it says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat or touch it or you will die. No, 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 you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, this account in Scripture is really fascinating. A couple things up front. This is not going to be a sermon on an argument for why they are talking snakes, um, nor is this meant to explain the origins of evil. Where does the devil come from? I don't necessarily know the answer to that uh, or um, any of these things uh, about that. Today, we're going to look at how and why deception functions in our life, the origin of deception. Now, let me define deception before we get too far down the road. Uh, the concept of deception is much more than just believing something wrong. Deception is about direction. Deception is to cause to wander off the path, to cause someone to hold a wrong view and thus, thus be mistaken, to mislead. Essentially, when we talk about deception, we're not just talking about you believing something that is misinformed, but that these beliefs would take you and put you on a different road and lead you far away from where you want to be. Deception is about direction. Let me ask you guys a question. 
why are, you, why are you here today? What do you hope to get out of it? If you were to go home and write down the goals you have in following Jesus or the goals you have in coming to church, what are those goals for your life? I, I know most of you guys would write down that you want to get closer to God. You want to live a life that pleases God. You want to grow deeper in prayer. You want to have a life that is worth something spiritually. Nobody in here would say that your goal is to be as far away from God as possible. But what deception does is it takes us and it puts a thought in our minds, and that thought leads us in the wrong direction. I remember years ago when I was in uh, middle school, my boys club team had a basketball tournament in Maine, and uh, we split up in a couple of different cars, and this was before the internet was, in, was invented, so there was no such thing as hopping on Waze or Google Maps to get there. And we pulled up to the toll booth, and this is before EasyPass was invented, and we get to the toll booth, and the car in front of us, I guess, had a conversation with the person at the toll booth, and they gave them directions, and they ended up going on 80 West. My dad's from Buffalo. He had driven back and forth from New York to Buffalo a hundred times, and he knew hopping on 80 West will lead you not towards Maine, which is north. It's going to lead you in the opposite direction. That car in front of us, we tried to honk, and there was no cell phones, that's how old I am. We tried to honk at them to get them to turn around, but the damage was done. They believed the directions from the toll booth operator. Those directions then led them in a different path. Fifteen hours later, they made it to the spot in Maine. Deception is all about direction. Not just that you believe thoughts, but that thoughts are taking you and putting you on a different path altogether. And when the, when the Bible speaks about deception, it's not speaking about just lies, just for argument's sake. It's speaking about these lives end up taking us in a direction that you never intended to go in. And here's the thing about deception. You never sign up for where it's going to take you. It will always take you several exits past where you intended to go. Now, if you're reading Genesis 3 and 4 and the subsequent chapters, what you'll see is that the end result for Adam and Eve was not just that they believed the wrong thing, but that those wrong things put them on a different highway, and that different highway took them on a path away from God. Now, before we get too far into today, I want to talk about two quick things, things that might be playing in your mind that might be making this feel like this is not for you. Like, well, Jordan is cool, his sneakers are nice, but I don't know that this really applies to me. Uh, the first is that a lot of people don't necessarily believe in the devil. All my Haitians and my Africans, I know y'all believe in the devil, but <laughs> straight up, I know it. I don't have to convince y'all. But there's a lot of us who are more, you know, we're more informed than the rest of this very simple world. And it just sounds weird that there is this boogeyman of a devil that's out to get you. It's a good reminder that there is an invisible world around us that controls the visible world that we do see day by day. In the late 1800s, doctors and scientists believed in something called spontaneous generation. Spontaneous generation was this belief that diseases would just pop up out of nowhere. Oftentimes, uh, doctors and scientists believed that it was God punishing you for something. So if you got sick, it was a belief that it wasn't causally connected to anything else. This just spontaneously generated, and you just got sick. 
Years later, this guy named Louis Pasteur came along, and Louis Pasteur said, no, it's not spontaneous generation. Things don't just pop up out of thin air. There is these, this invisible world of germs called the germ theory. These germs can fly through the air. They can pass from contact, uh, they can pass from person to person, and these germs have um, an amazing way of impacting our world. He says, there's an invisible world that's impacting the visible world. And this invisible world of germs are everywhere, even though you can't see them. There are things we can't see that are changing what we can see. Now, it's interesting because not everybody in the medical community even believed him. They were like, oh, wait, wait, so you're telling me that there's these invisible germs that just fly around and they just land on people, even though I can't see them? To which he said, absolutely. Some of, these, some of what I'm saying today might sound to you like what Louis Pasteur was saying to that medical community. There is an invisible world out there that controls what we do see. Now today, all of us believe in germs. So much so, so, much so most of you have Purell somewhere within arm's reach of you right now. Every single time my, when my son was in daycare, he was a walking Petri dish, essentially, for germs. It was like a buffet of germs, like, which one do you want today? And um, I, would, I remember getting so sad when I saw him get sick because in my brain, I was just replaying the last 24 hours of him coughing in my face, of him <laughs> spreading his germs right to me, and I knew I was in for it. He was going to get sick for like three hours. I was going to get sick for three weeks and be ready to go to the hospital uh, because I know that germs are real. I don't have to see them. I don't have to even know that it's happening when it's happening. But they're real and they're dangerous. When Jesus speaks about the invisible world, he speaks about it as very real and profound and impacting of our visible world, even though you and I can't see it. Even though you and I can't sense everything that's happening, he speaks about them as real. And here's what Jesus says about the devil and his intentions. He says in John 8:44, the enemy was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. That's an interesting phrase that Jesus uses at the end of that scripture, that he is the father of lies, meaning that the devil is out of this world good at telling lies, that he's better at telling lies than you are at discerning the truth. I recently watched a Sam Cooke documentary uh, on Netflix, and it's a really fascinating one. And every time I hear that dude sing, I'm like, yo, this dude is the greatest ever. There will never be another voice like Sam Cooke. He is referred to as the, so the, the father of soul. What, is, what happens when you listen to Sam Cooke? You're, you're mesmerized by how out of this world good his voice is. When Jesus calls the enemy the father of lies, he's saying he is out of this world good at lying. Which leads us to the second thing that you're thinking that you're, you're not supposed to be here today listening to this message. Even if the devil does exist, none of us believes that we're susceptible to believing these lies. Maybe other people. Maybe like the misinformed, but like, like not me. Like I, I've lived too much life. You know what I mean? I, I've seen through too many things. And we believe wrongly that we somehow are immune, that we're not susceptible to believing this father of of lies, and you and I um, have this amazing ability to believe that we're in the right, but yet we could be deeply off at the same 
time. And the worst part about deception is you could be deceived and you'd be the last person to know it. There's a story in the Bible about two men, one named Nathan and one named David. Nathan is a prophet, meaning that God gave Nathan words to say to people. David was the king. He's the man who wrote most of the Psalms that we have in our Bible. The Bible describes David as not just a king, but a man after God's own heart. So David is a man who is in constant communication with prophets and leaders of Israel. He's in constant communication with God, and God has given him words to even write in prayers that the Hebrew people would be praying and that Christians pray all the time through the present. But David, even with all of his um, economic growth in his life and him being a king, with all of the interactions he was having with prophets, David was miserably deceived and he was the last person to know it. So much so that Nathan comes to David and tells him a story. He says, hey, king, I have this crazy story that I want to tell you. There's this one really rich dude who has hundreds of cattle and lamb and sheep, and there's this one really poor dude, and all he has is one sheep. And this rich guy takes it from him, even though the poor guy really loves it, this one sheep. Uh, the scripture actually says that he treated this sheep like his own daughter. The rich guy takes it, and has it killed and eats it. David gets furious and says, where is this man? This dude deserves to die. Nathan looks at him and says, bro, you're the man. David was the king and had everything at his disposal. He sees a woman named Bathsheba, has her husband Uriah thrown on the front lines to be killed so he can take her as his wife. And David is now confronting David with something that is a massive blind spot in his life that he could be so wrong and he could be the last person to notice it. That he can see it in other people's life, but he couldn't see it in his own. Human beings have the amazing ability to desensitize ourselves to our own wrongdoing, and it is never to our good. So you might not feel like you might be a prime candidate to be deceived, but if you really believe that, that's when you are probably the most at danger. Now, none of us are immune from being deceived. And the story of Nathan and David shows us how it's possible to be passionate about the truth and yet blind to our own opposition of it. Now, the Bible says that this problem is not just limited to Adam and Eve or David, but it's limited to all of us. And in 1 Peter 5 and 8, it describes the situation that we're talking about. It says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. How does Satan devour people through deception? I was watching uh, BBC America's news show on uh, dynasties. Anybody watch that? It's a fantastic show. Um, and um, it's narrated by an English dude, so it just sounds more interesting whenever they say something. And as he's narrating it, when he's talking about the lions, man, I was just so struck by what he said. Lions are these beautiful, majestic, strong animals, and he said, the lion loses its advantage the moment it's seen. So what lions do from a very young age, and in the show, they show like small baby lions learning how to hunt, and how do they hunt? They hunt in tall grass, and they get really, really low, and they sneak up on their prey. And there was one scene where a lion uh, killed a gazelle or something, and it was three feet away from the gazelle who was chilling, thinking he was good thinking that he was in no danger whatsoever, and by the time he saw him, it was too late. 
When the Bible speaks about the enemy roaring, walking around as a wrong lion looking for whom he may devour, the tactic that is used is deception. It's never that you and I would be bombarded or overpowered by something, but that we would be living in such a way that we think that everything is all good and it's really not. And by the time that we see the danger coming to us, it's way too late. So none of us have an immunity to being overthrown. One of the things that's been really powerful for me in a, in a tough way is that uh, being a pastor, I see a lot of people, pastors who were really powerful people, have what some people call a fall from grace, as if people go from being really people of integrity to in public scandal overnight with nothing intervening. None of our lives are spontaneously generated. There is something happening behind the scenes that we never notice. Um, there's this one guy who actually wrote a book that I really leaned on a lot when my late wife was going through her cancer therapy. And in a lot of ways, God used this dude to like shape my life for real. And a few months ago, he was fired for a list, a long, long, long list of stuff. And that's just what they put public uh, for what he was doing in his church. And you think, man, how did this dude go from loving God passionately to just, yo, this dude had no, he had no boundaries whatsoever. This dude was wild. Like, how did he, why would he just give up everything, his life, his reputation, his family? What was happening in his life? He was deceived. None of us are immune from that in our lives, and that's the main reason we're talking about this today, because um, I don't want this for me or for you. It, even in the four and a half years that Renaissance has started, I've seen marriages legitimately destroyed. I've seen dreams shattered. I've seen careers altered because people were deceived. So what's happening in Genesis 3? I want to spend some time kind of breaking down the anatomy of what deception is, give us a couple of examples on how that looks like for us today, and then talk about the road back from deception, what that looks like as well. So we're going to see in the scripture that deception is made up of distortion, denial, desire, and disobedience. Distorting the truth, denying the consequences, desiring things that were not intended for us, and disobeying what God had written for our lives. The first is distortion. Now, the chapter before this, you see some really, really clear commands from God to his people about what they're supposed to be doing. In verses 16 and 17 of the, sixth, of the second chapter, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for on that day you eat of it, you will certainly die. God says they can eat from any tree in the garden except for one, and listen to how this gets distorted. So God is saying you have freedom to eat from anything except for this one. And what the enemy does is distort the limitations that God had put on them as oppressive. So listen to what he says. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say... You can't eat from any tree in the garden? Very subtly, he switches the order in which God gave the instructions. God did not mean to be overly restrictive so they couldn't eat from anything. What I've most seen this in, in the lives of people is this restriction, this belief, this accusation against the character of God that God doesn't want you to have any fun. God wants you to be miserable. Does God really want you to be miserable? Of course not. God putting limitations on us is not 
um, the same thing as God wanting us to be miserable. God gives us so much, and God was giving Adam and Eve free reign over everything, but gave them this one very important limitation. So the first thing he does is distort it and to make God's limitations seem absurd. So the most effective way that we'll see even in this is to distort something is not to make up something completely new, but to take what was said and just mix it around a little bit. Second comes the denial and denying the consequences associated with what God said in verses four and five. It says, no, 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 no. You're not going to die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, there's actually some good stuff for you in this. In fact, God just knows that when you eat it, your eyes are going to be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Denial is when the consequences for our actions are distorted. It's when it's presented to us that we can disobey God with no negative effect. What you understood was wrong. That's not what it means. And this is one sure sign that deception is taking place in our life. And it really starts to take root once we're not just um, unsure anymore, but we're now actively believing something different. We're believing the opposite. And this is when we come into the equation. The third aspect of, of deception is desire. In verse 6, it says, The woman saw the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and it was, a desirable, and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Man, one of the major pitfalls of our generation is that we believe just because something looks good or feels good, then it is good. With my son, who's three years old, um, he has inherited his sweet tooth from his old man, and this dude loves candy. He loves chocolate. And if you were to ask him, what do you want to eat? He would gladly eat donuts for breakfast, donuts for lunch, and a lollipop for dinner. <laughs> Last night, he was like, Daddy, I'm hungry. My tummy's empty. I'm hungry. I need a lollipop. I'm like, bro, that ain't going to do it. If you're hungry, then that life probably going to do nothing but make you hungrier. If I were to leave it to his own choice, he would fill his life with things that feel good but that are not good. And by the time he was 13, he would have so many cavities, they would have built the Underground Railroad in his teeth. Now... It's really, really easy to see this in the example of a three-year-old that wants to eat candy all day. Just like we just said, it's really hard to see it in our own lives. We're the last people to believe that we are being deceived. Eventually, in this process, we start to believe that the things that we desire are not just meant for us, but that to withhold it from us is cruel. So the desire comes into it, and the last step is um, disobedience. There, Eve takes the fruit and eats it and then passes it to Adam, and then it is too late. Her eyes were open. His eyes were open. And here's one of the things that's so compelling about the scripture. The warning comes to them that if you eat it, you're going to die. Eve eats it, and there's no immediate consequence. So what does she do? She passes it on to Adam. One of the dangers in what we're talking about being deception is that for most of the things that we do, there is no immediate consequence to our actions. If there were, if every single time someone lied on their taxes, they got struck dead, everybody, there would be no need for the IRS. Like, yo, what happened to Raheem? Yo, son. He lied, bro. And I'm like, dad, when's his funeral? You know what I'm saying? In their life, there was no immediate consequences to their actions. And that's when deception really, really 
took root. She started to believe that, yeah, you know what? The serpent was right. Like, it's not that big of a deal. Um, nothing happened to me, and um, I don't know what this, all this fuss was in the beginning. Now, let me give some flesh to the situation and put some context to it. Um, two examples. One is light. The other one is heavy. Um, since community groups are starting today, uh, it's a good time to review and to analyze a scripture that should be guiding your community groups. So what are community groups? They are a time of Bible reading, but they're also a time of community, which means that for as much as you want to be reading the Bible, you should, always be, you should also be allowing people to read you. It's not just reading the Bible in a vacuum, but that there are people that you are building relationships with, other men, other women, that you could be open and honest with about the real life struggles and things that you live with. And there's a scripture in James 5 and 16, it says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. This is very plain. If you have some things going on in your life, if you are missing the mark in an area, you should tell someone about what's going on. Now, very practically speaking, am I saying that you should go into the lobby right now over donut holes and tell someone everything you've done? No, I'm not saying that. Some things would be better reserved for a one-on-one -on -one conversation, for sure. But don't dismiss the concept because it might seem a little impractical to you today. You should not spend an entire semester of community group and you haven't actually opened up what's really going on in your life. Now remember, if there's something going on in your life and you're, you're lighting your taxes, you feel convicted about it, uh, you're holding bitterness for someone, you're holding unforgiveness for someone. You're rooting for someone's downfall. You did something terrible. You went to Staten Island. Whatever it is that's really bad. <laughs> Whatever it is that seems so unforgivable. Um, <laughs> when people ask you how you're doing, don't just say, hey, I'm fine. Here's what happens. It's something very clear in scripture. What should you do? Confess it. Say something. Do not keep it inside of your life. Do not hold your cards that close to your chest. You will not win the game that way. What happens is, I mean, do I really have to say something about that? Remember, deception is all about direction. The direction that God wants you to, to walk into is healing, it's transparency, it's honesty, it's being able to give and to receive grace. That word in our minds gets distorted. I mean, do I really have to like be the weird dude or the weird lady to just, like say something that's really, that I'm really bothering with? And what comes next is this desire to maintain our appearance. I don't want to be the one in, in the group that's always talking about where I'm falling short. So we keep it to ourselves. And we disobey what's plainly stated in Scripture. Confess your faults to one another so that you may be healed. What happens immediately? Nothing. A lightning bolt is not going to come because you didn't share something at community group or with someone uh, that you're walking uh, alongside in this community. But... Eventually, the road that you will be on now is isolated and unconfessing. This road will not take you towards the goal that you have in Jesus. You could spend an entire community group of people, and you might start to believe that the problem in the community group is the discussion guys really ain't hitting for what everything I needed to hit for. When in reality, we're actually walking in active disobedience away from the path that God wants us to walk in. I know you have your pride, but there's healing at the end of that. Now, another, the concept of deception, again, is about direction. The enemy's goal is to send you in a different direction than what God intends. 
Now, another topic, which is certainly the more heavy of the examples, and this is for the people in the room who are uh, followers of Jesus. If you don't know where you're at with Jesus yet, um, then you get a hall pass for this one, and you can listen in to the conversation that uh, people who have said that, Jesus, you're not just my Savior, but you're my Lord. I'm going to follow you with my life. Uh, this is a conversation for, for us right now. Uh, New York City is a very sexually charged city, very sexually charged city, and the vast majority of our church is single, and um, even for the married people, certainly this is not something you are immune to either. And there's a lot of really clear scripture in the Bible. I mean, it's not even debated about the sinfulness of sex outside of marriage. And before I get to this point, let me just first say a big disclaimer. There is a huge difference between struggling and being deceived. I'm not saying that everybody who's struggling is deceived. And I know how real it is. And when people say the struggle is real, I know for real, for real, the struggle is real. I know what it means to date in my 30s. And to tell somebody straight up, like, yo, I'm, I'm going to be abstinent, and to get laughed at. Part of the reason my wife and I got married as quick as we did. <laughs> she couldn't, you know what I'm saying? It was for her. She couldn't keep her hands off me. Man, I didn't even know my wife's middle name when we got married. It was like, come on, let's just, let's just get married. If you're struggling, for real, for real, here's, we made it to the finish line, we limped there, but we made it. If you're struggling, here's what I know to be true for me that's definitely gonna be true for you. What you need in your life is for sure better boundaries, real accountability, and a rhythm of confession. Better boundaries, a rhythm of accountability where people actually know where you were at last night, and for real, for real, accountability, right? If you put these things in place, you will very likely um, gain traction on walking in the, in the way that God wants us to walk. Uh, but there are other people who you're not even struggling with it. You've moved so far off course that nothing bothers you anymore. And, um, and this could be with sex or, or anything. At first, it bothered you, right? At, at first, it, it really bothered you. But now, it's so routine that it just, it's not that big of a deal. Why are people making this a big deal when it's, when it's actually not? And that's, this is what we talk about when we're talking about deception, when you believe something so strongly that it doesn't even bother you anymore. And it goes directly against the words revealed to us in Scripture. Here's one thing from Jesus in Mark 7, 20 through 23. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And defile is a, is a really strong word that the Jewish people would have understood very well. There were all these laws about purity and defilement and what made you what made you fit to come to God and be in relationship with God? And Jesus is saying, it's not the food that you eat. It's not the clothes that you wear. It's from what it's coming from within us is what actually defiles us. Um, evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things, all these evil things come from within and defile a person. All throughout scripture, you'll see extremely clear words about, um, about sex and sexuality and all these different things in scripture, uh, particularly about how we use our bodies. And for us, and you know, again, there's a difference between struggling and being uh, deceived. And one of the things that's probably the most painful uh, in being a pastor is to see people actively 
being deceived because what, actually, what, what ends up happening each time is I start to see them believing different things, and whatever they came in here with as their goals, they really go in the opposite direction. And that's because our lifestyle decisions end up hardening us. You can't do something with no consequence. Hebrews 3 and 13 says, Encourage one e- each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. What does it mean to be hardened? It means that your heart, instead of being receptive and able to hear, that we become calloused. Anybody who works out and has calluses on your hands knows what this feels like. Uh, To become callous means that nothing can go through. And the things that would ordinarily bother you, you don't even feel them anymore. Scripture is telling us here that our decisions and our actions can lead us to harden us from the truth. And here's what usually happens. I've seen this happen so much in my friends' lives and people that I've done college ministry with, leaders and other pastors and certainly congregants and members. What ends up happening is once upon a time, you believe something. You believe that sex was wrong and you struggled with it in high school and college. And then you come to New York where you would be the weirdest person in the world to say that you don't do these things. So then you reevaluate. Did God really say that I can't do this? Slowly but surely, you have a couple of options. One, you could feel guilty all the time. You could lock yourself in your apartment, or you could just adjust your theology. What, most people, what many people do in this case is they just change what they believe. And maybe it's not that bad. Maybe I'm being too hard on myself. Maybe my conscience is a little bit too overwired all the time. And eventually, we begin to change what we believe, not because we heard a better argument, but rather we begin to change what we believe because of our lifestyle decisions have hardened us. Nobody wants to feel guilty all the time, so we change what we believe, and that's when we're in the lion's teeth. Don't let the fact that you have not seen lightning bolts from the sky make you believe that it's all good. Remember, deception is about direction. The enemy's goal is to send you in a different direction than what God intends. Now, the road back from being deceived starts and it ends with God, and that's the good news of the gospel. We talk about the gospel all the time, it being an announcement. It is the good news of what Jesus has done, not a set of instructions on what you must do. And we see the beauty of the gospel in this on what it means to recover, big or small, from deception or a life that's just off course. In verses 8 through 9, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? One of the biggest misconceptions about God, and this is a terrible misconception, uh, and I hope you never believe this, is that in order for you and God to be right, you have to work yourself back to a place that's respectable If you come 99 feet, God will come one. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Adam and Eve were lost. They were hiding. And his voice comes out not to interrogate them, but to intervene in their lives. Adam and Eve, where are you? This was not a geographic question because God didn't know where they were. It was an intervention. There's a Bible scripture in Hebrews later in the the book of Hebrews that says, in the day that you hear the the voice of the Lord, don't harden your hearts. If you feel convicted about something, if you feel uneasy about something, that's God calling out to you saying, where are you? So that you and I can critically start to evaluate, yo, where am I? How did I get here? Because here's the thing about this. Our lifestyles are not spontaneously generated. 
There is an invisible world that has taken us and led us to this point. If you are feeling conviction about anything, whether it's about something I talked about, something I didn't talk about, if this concept of God saying, where are you, is resonating with you, here's what I want you to do. We have a whole team of leaders, men and women, that would love to be an intervening process with you to walk alongside you as you more readily figure these things out. On your programs, you got a next step card, and there's two ways to hand that next step card in. One, you can hand it in, uh, you can come down for prayer after service, you can receive prayer or not, you can just pass it to the person, or you could drop it off at the info desk after service. And what this will do is start a conversation of recognizing that, listen, I know I'm off and I know the Lord is looking for me, right? Jesus tells this parable in Luke 15 that says there's, 90, there's 100 sheep, 99 of them are good, right? And there's one that's lost. What does Jesus do? There's one sheep who got lost, usually because of his own decisions. Jesus leaves the 99 and goes after the one. God is searching for you, not to get you back, but to win you back. He is not coming after you with a lecture in hand. He is coming to bring you back into his good graces. The whole story of the incarnation of Jesus came to earth is a story of God coming to redeem his own people. God is not coming to you to interrogate you, but to intervene in your life to bring you back. And here's the thing that's so interesting about this concept of the, of um, us coming back to God starts and ends with God because you and I don't have the ability to actually do it on our own. This past week, my wife uh, went with some of her girlfriends, and they were hanging out in Jamaica, living their best life, and um, we were struggling in the cold. And uh, they went to this one spot in the grill where they jump off of cliffs, and they were having a good time. And she jumped off the cliff and landed in the water. And as soon as she came out, her first thought was, I lost my Apple Watch. Now, this water was about 30 or 40 feet deep, and the sad part about the story is her, as she came up from the water, she's safe, she starts to think, oh my God, Jordan is going to kill me once he finds out I lost my watch. That's how much I love Apple, sometimes more than my own family. <laughs> now, 30 to 40 feet deep water, it was rough, it was a rough current, and what happens next is my wife, she realized she doesn't have what it takes to go and swim and get her and dive down and get her watch. So she swam to shore, and there was a little man that had all of the equipment, a Jamaican dude, she got throw a little $20, $20 bill, but he had the equipment and the skill and the knowledge of how to go down and dive and get it. And thank God he retrieved the watch. Marriage restored. <laughs> She did not have the equipment or the ability to get back what was lost. You and I don't have the equipment or the ability to get back what was lost. This is why when we talk about communion, we celebrate Jesus being our savior, not just our teacher. There's a lot that Jesus can show you, but there's more that he wants to and can deliver you from. Jesus is the one that actually can bring us back. When we celebrate communion and we see Jesus on the cross, what is, this, what is happening? What is this cosmic transaction that's taking place? It's Jesus bringing us back. If you're lost, if you feel like you're off course, like you're off track, hear these words, where are you? And I want you to answer back. The next thing that we see that's so amazing in the scripture comes from verse 21. Now, this is how amazing God is to mess up people like me and you. They had sewn for themselves garments of fig leaves to cover up. But in verse 21, it says, the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. 
There are verses in Scripture that talk about us being clothed with his righteousness. You can't put it on yourself. You can't sew it together yourself. We inherit it from uh, this abiding relationship with Jesus. And these three words, God clothed them. God covered them. And this is the second reason we celebrate communion is because Jesus came after us and he covers us. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. Now, this scripture in Genesis 3 is one of the most profound and perplexing in all of the Hebrew Bible. How is it that there are skins made when there are no dead animals? 1 Peter 1 shows us that this is a foresight to a spiritual truth we'll learn later in scripture. It says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of this world, before, uh, but was re revealed in these last times for your sake. Jesus is the Lamb of God that God has given us before the foundation of the world, before there was an enemy or before there was deception, there was already a remedy in Christ. I want us to spend about 30 seconds in silent prayer, actually. And if you haven't prayed in a long time, this is particularly for you. If you uh, don't always even know what to say when you're praying, praying, this is for you especially. And this is also for anyone who feels like your life might be taking off course in one direction or another. I wanted to spend about 30 seconds and just pray. God, you know where I am, but I often don't. Father, in the ways that I am tempted to, to walk away from you in word and in deed, in ways that I have believed lies from the father of lies, in ways that I'm not even aware of all of the things that await me. Jesus, I thank you that you are the good shepherd that comes after me. And today, Lord, I determine to be found. Jesus, let me pray. Amen.